Please open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Today we'll be looking at chapter 14, 2 Samuel 14. With the horrific things going on in King David's family, this chapter continues our story. We must realize that sometimes as we go through these events in the lives of Old Testament people, some of whom do belong to the Lord, um, there are incredible warnings involved in these stories. We've already heard several today in this chapter. Uh, we get one particular category of warning. Um, as we begin, see if you can figure out what that might be. It will be clarified over and over and over again as we go on. As we begin this chapter, one of the things that we've got to do is try to understand, in probably a deeper way, David's attitude towards his son, Absalom. Absalom, who executed vengeance upon his half-brother Amnon, Amnon, who raped his half-sister Tamar, are the main characters. Absalom had waited two full years, we learn in chapter 13, verse 23, before actually carrying out his murderous plot and killed Absalom and killed Amnon. In other words, it was just at the right time, quote unquote, when even David didn't suspect him of holding anything against Amnon before Absalom actually carried this evil plot out. And then Absalom fled for his own life to his grandfather in Geshur, which is just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Absalom was there, we learn, also in chapter 13 for three years. And as I Read the last two verses of chapter 13 and the first verse of chapter 14 in just a second. Notice how the English seems to imply that David is ready and waiting and wanting to have Absalom back. In fact, I would be willing to bet that almost everyone in here, as we've read these stories over and over and over again uh, growing up, it's just something that we think is true. But it's a little more complicated than that, and I want to make sure we understand this now, because as we go on with this chapter, it'll come into play. The last two verses of chapter 13 and the first verse of 14. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out 
to Absalom. You notice that what is implied, probably every one of us thinks that David now wants Absalom back. Let's look at it another way, because there is another rendering of these two verses, which is just as possible. And in light of what happens after this in chapter 14, it actually helps us to understand it a whole lot better. The understanding reflected in probably most of all of our English translations, and I checked all I could, and every one of them but one was pretty adamant about this fact, is that David, though alienated during this time from his son Absalom, still had an abiding love and concern for him, and he longed for reconciliation. A rather different interpretation of these verses supposes that David's interest in taking military action against Absalom for his murder of his half-brother actually grew slack with the passing of time, and this in turn enabled David's advisors to encourage him towards reconciliation with Absalom. The key there is the first part of that second understanding. David's interest in taking military action against Absalom. Why? Because he hauled off and went to Geshur. It would take military action to get him back and bring him to justice. With the passing of time, that resolve dissipated. And so... His advisors, who are they talking about there? Mainly Joab, um, decided it was time to encourage David to reconcile with Absalom. Do you see the difference between those two? This understanding of verse 39 and then and then carries over to 14.1. What, what does Joab know and perceive about David? That's really the question here because of what he tries to do. Most of our English translations and versions, as I said, say something like this. The English Standard says Joab knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. The New American Standard says the king's heart went out and he was inclined toward Absalom. The King James says was toward Absalom. The NIV says longed for Absalom. There's one more. I'll mention it second. The problem is that there is no verb in verse 1 that says long for. So even though most of these translations try to be word for word, sometimes in the Hebrew it gets really hard to do that. There is no verb that says long for, but we kind of get that idea no matter which version we use because of how we read verse 39. Now, verse 1 of chapter 14 in the Hebrew says this, the heart of the king was upon Absalom. That could mean either upon positively or upon still, what, critically. David's heart was upon Absalom, meaning David was thinking about Absalom. Or David's heart was against Absalom, meaning David remained hostile 
to Absalom for what he had done. In fact, it's used that way in Daniel 11, verse 28. The same phrase is translated as set against. When I started out the sermon, I realized, oh, that's what this is. Um, that kind of shakes you right off from the beginning because you nat- naturally think that the king was just going, oh, I want to reconcile, would you please come back? Because of all the stuff that happens in this chapter and later. But just consider this. Now, in the Home and Christian Standard Bible, we read Joab observed that the king's mind was on Absalom. And that translation actually gives you both options there. Now, either way, either one of those ways, David's attitude towards Absalom seems to be much more complicated than just a love and concern and sadness over a lost and murderous son. It's a lot more complicated. David knew it was his responsibility as the father and as king to carry out justice. That was his job. He also knew that he had failed miserably to do that. And probably because he felt he could no longer carry out justice in a situation that was so similar to his own. which God had forgiven, and we even read that God had let David live. What he did was worthy of death. But God does God's action in his case mean that David was not supposed to act at all? Every father in here is going, boy... I may not have done that, hopefully, but I sure understand this, this one. And yes, it is complicated, even though our wives may not think that we know it is. It is complicated. And what we see throughout the text is David's indecisive action, his appearance of action, or no action at all. That's what we see over and over and over again here. He knows that Absalom deserves punishment. But he has settled. I hate that phrase. Because that says it all. He has settled for Absalom being far off and not there. And a hundred miles away over that terrain at this time in history was a long way away. David may still love Absalom as his son. But our text at the end of chapter 13 and in chapter 14 seems to be emphasizing something else. That David is tired. And he's fed up with pursuing justice or reconciliation or anything else. We could say overwhelmed. So... He does nothing. And this is what all before Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, which we're going to get to in just a minute. It's before Absalom conspires to take David's throne. It's before Absalom is finally killed. And it's before David says, when his heart hears 
when he hears about Absalom's death later, in chapter 18 is that famous verse, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But there is more to this cry than grief because of natural affection of a father to a son. There's more to it. Nathan's words in chapter 12, verse 10, have been shouting to David since he heard of Tamar's rape. And then in chapter 18, 33, a couple of chapters from where we are, it all explodes like it's not exploding now. But it really explodes. The Lord, remember, has said to David through Nathan, what? In chapter 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. Remember, he's actually said it twice. It's David's guilt that inflames his grief. If, and you can read it in there in that cry in chapter 18. If only I had died instead of you. Why does he say that? It's really because of his guilt. Absalom was guilty, though, and deserving execution, but David knew that his own sin had set the sword loose in his own household. Sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Well, let's read the whole chapter it's 33 verses and if you're able to stand for that long i'll read fast i'm going to read chapter 14 be reading from the english standard version now joab the son of zeruah knew that the king's heart went out to absalom and joab sent to tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What's your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I'll give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. 
He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I'll speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man, Absalom. And Joab fell to his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head five pounds. There were more to Absalom, there were born more to Absalom, three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house. 
and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, unless you'd rather stand some more. Quite a story. In chapter 14, we see a whole lot of manipulation, do we not? A whole lot. You notice there's some key elements, two main ones. There's a question we can ask about what kind of wisdom do we see in all these events? What kind of wisdom? And what kind of leadership do we see here? Well, first let's look at the wisdom part. The key is this. It is possible to have all kinds of signs of wisdom, the plans, the strategies, the accomplishments, but be utterly without the real thing. This chapter is a pretty good example of that. There's really four kinds of wisdom that we can see in this text. The first kind is the planning kind of wisdom in verses 1 through 3. Joab knows that he must go, to da- go at David by an in-round kind of route. Not directly, so he's getting kind of deceptive. But he plans it all out. He uses a wise woman to deliver a story that would tug at David's feelings and hopefully get him to let Absalom back. The word wise here is the same word that's translated crafty in verse 13, uh, verse 3 of chapter 13 about Jonadab. Same word. Then we see a second kind of wisdom, a persuasive kind of wisdom in verses 4 through 17. What a story that was. I figured I had to read that whole thing, or you'd be reading it the whole sermon and not hear anything about it. Because that was really something, was it not? But we've seen that kind of story before. And we'll draw that comparison in just a minute. She's a widow, verse 5. Had two sons who quarreled in a field. Remember, this is a story. And I'm not a a story story, not a factual story. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him, verse 6. And now the whole family clan is what? Clamoring for the killer's execution, even to the point of their desire for justice, actually covering up their real motive of greed. Did you catch that? Their passion for justice just covers up their greed. If they execute the remaining son, then at her death, 
all the husband's property would become available to the extended family. Under a guise of justice, they plot injustice. Would the king please intervene? Pretty good plan, huh? So David listens and says in verse 10, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. But she wants more than just assurance, doesn't she? What does she ask for? She wants an oath. Why? She wants the king's oath. Because what she's really after is David binding himself to an action that he would have to apply to himself concerning Absalom. So David says, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The woman's fictional son now has immunity. Then the woman switches gears and begins to weave David's current situation into the plot line. In verse 13, she basically says that the king is being hypocritical. He just decreed that the woman's banished son should be restored, but he's not done anything to restore his own son. In verse 14, she says that death is irreversible, and since God acts according to the dictates of mercy, as in David's own experience, David was then obligated to do the same. So, this is she's appealing to God's mer- to appeal she's saying that to appeal <clears throat> to God's mercy in a case that requires his justice is what she's after but that's not either one that's sentimentality it's not wisdom and then in verse 15 she cushions the blow by reverting to her own situation. And David reacts to her, her, his reaction to her story shows a third kind of wisdom. He's actually perceptive in this situation. Verses 18 through 20. David's sharpness And here, this situation sniffs out what hands and minds are at work behind the scenes. Joab put these words in your mouth. He finally sees through it. So how does she get out of it? She just deftly owns owns up to it. This, This lady's slick. Before we examine what David did, now we must notice another kind of wisdom first by Absalom, and that's pragmatic wisdom. So we've seen there's a planning kind of wisdom. There's a persuasive kind of wisdom. There's a perceptive kind of wisdom, and there's a pragmatic kind of wisdom. In verses 29 through 31, at this point, Absalom's then brought back to Jerusalem, but he's in kind of an at-home banishment 
under house arrest almost, he figures out how to get Joab, who's now ignoring him, to get him into David's presence. Joab wouldn't come, wouldn't come, so he just sets the guy's field on fire. It worked. Why'd you set my field on fire? There's nothing like fire to get some action. It works. Absalom knows how to get things done. And even people that don't respond to anything will pay attention to you if you burn up their field or something similar. Now, there are all these signs of wisdom, and you might say craftiness as well, but the question is, is this really God's wisdom? Hardly. We can plan and strategize. We can be persuasive and crafty. We can be perceptive in some things. And we can know how to make things happen. But is that godly wisdom? No, it is not. The message, see, in this chapter is that all this doesn't mean that we're really wise. We, we can think we're wise and be completely foolish. We can be wise in some things and be a complete idiot in things that really matter. What a warning. It speaks loud and clear, does it not? To all of us and to the church as a whole. What a warning for us as individuals and as a church. Now this begs the question about leadership, which we also see demonstrated or not demonstrated well in this chapter. We'll go back to David first and then Absalom. First about David's leadership. What we really see in David are mostly reactions. He doesn't rule as king with godly wisdom as much as he reacts to everything. Let me ask you a question. Is that dangerous? It is so dangerous. In verse 21, we see David consenting to the woman's request. David tells Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And then in verse 24, we see David's lack of decisiveness. He lets him come back to Jerusalem, but he says of Absalom, he's not to come into my presence. David is now in that cloudy area that too many of us know oh so well, of not doing what he should do as king, but not really following through as a father either. How did he get there? We need to understand this. When the woman was telling her story to David, did another story told to David come to your mind? Which is another reason why we go through the book. What story he that he heard just a couple of chapters ago 
is similar to this story in some ways. Nathan's story in chapter 12. Nathan's story was designed to rouse the king's conscience. Not just his feelings. Big difference. Because the woman's story, Joab's story, was designed to rouse what? It was designed to rouse David's feelings and not his conscience. This is an important distinction that we in our day need to understand. Nathan was trying to stir up David's conscience. Does everybody remember that story? The poor guy had a little pet lamb, precious. A rich guy had a guest. He didn't want to use his own livestock to feed the guest, the important guest, so he went and just took the small guys, the poor guys, the unimportant guy's lamb, butchered it, fed it. Nathan told him that story, and David rose up in anger. How could anybody do that? That guy needs to die. He needs to get back ten, however many fold more than what he took. Nathan said what? You're the man. You're the rich guy that took the lamb. David saw his whole affair, the whole murder of Bathsheba's before his eyes. He knew he had done exactly the same thing, and he just pronounced a death sentence upon himself, which he deserved. It rouses conscience. The woman story did just the opposite. The plan was just the opposite. He was trying to stir David's feelings for Absalom so David would bring him back. Instead of David still being hostile to Absalom and not letting him come back to Jerusalem. And this is why we spent time at the beginning explaining David's attitude towards Absalom. Now that David compromised and did not fulfill his kingly responsibility to execute justice, he was caught in a no-man's land. Absalom was home, but he couldn't see the king. Lots of times in life, we can identify with this. Finally, David caves completely. In the last statement of chapter 14, verse 33, we read, So Absalom came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Got a note in my Bible by this phrase. Kissing his son signified Absalom's restoration to royal favor. Not the right of succession, but his favor. The same restoration that had looked impossible for the last five years. 
But let's think about this just for a second. Absalom lays down the challenge to David, either receive me or execute me. His ultimatum was what? It was a calculated risk. If David was minded, if he had made up his mind to impose justice, he would not have permitted Absalom to come back safely in the first place. Absalom was right. A little groveling and it was all over. And now he, he was on site to make a play for the throne. I hope everyone sees this for what it is. So this is not a wonderful and certainly not a happy ending in chapter 14. And too many times we're going to go, oh, isn't that wonderful? They made up. It's not. Not at all. Because the first thing that we see in chapter 15 is Absalom beginning his takeover of the throne. A coup. The very first thing he did. So what about Absalom's leadership? Well, in verses 25 through 27, we read a lot. They're not out of place. They're in the text for a reason. Absalom has the image and he has the appearance of a super leader. Can we say king? But he doesn't have godly wisdom. He's very handsome. Verse 25. I mean, you don't see descriptions like this very often. From the sole of his foot or his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And he's got an especially fine hair of head. I'll do it now, or I resisted earlier. Nothing's flying up there, folks. His was five pounds worth. You can see an advertisement, every one of us. And he has very fine family. Did you notice that in verse 27? Wife, kids. Oh, the image we see here, the kind of image that men and women are drawn to. But we can see from Absalom's ultimatum to Joab in verse 32 what he was really after. An evil heart with evil designs and experience in murder is now ready to outmaneuver David for David's own throne. Everything looks like it's fallen into place. Absalom's ready. He's got David doing absolutely nothing. He's weak. He can, he can do it. He's going to get the people's favor. We'll read that in the next chapter. And it happens. But you know what? Isn't that how it looks for a lot of evil in the world? It's all in place. My plan's there. Nothing can touch it. God has the last word. Always. And in contrast to Absalom's magnetic personality and striking good looks, what kind of leaders are the church supposed to have? 1 Timothy 3, 
1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Are you thinking, David, David, David? For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or may he may be, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Godly wisdom values godly character no matter what kind of plans are involved, no matter how persuasive a person is or perceptive or pragmatic. James writes this, James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Ask that about chapter 14. Anybody come to mind? Nobody. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One Old Testament psalm will do. Psalm 111, verse 10. The foundation of it all, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. The foundation must be a submissive submission to the authority of the Lord God, creator of all, and Savior in Christ, his son. Otherwise, not God's. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we read this chapter, 
you have used this story in our own hearts to point out our own laziness, our own unwillingness to to seek you and your face. Only there is true wisdom. As you work in us to change the hearts that you have regenerated, given us a new one, um, we pray that you would work these characteristics in, into goals that we not only pray about, but we go through the day as we live before your face. Um, asking for your spirit to give us the power, the strength, the wisdom, and the discipline to see these situations as opportunities to give glory to you and not to bring any to ourselves. Lord, we, we know you're committed to changing us in this regard and helping us grow in this regard. And no matter where we are in this growth, we do um, confess our constant rebellion and proneness to wander. And we, we come to your throne of grace, O oh Lord, and ask for our mercy and your grace in Christ and for your spirit to do what you have sent him to do in us. God, we thank you that you've given us direction and purpose, and we thank you for even the, the horrid examples of people making unwise choices and going after things for themselves to build themselves up in pride and people that are shackled by their own past sins and not, not using those situations to grow in grace and obedience, but just becoming uh, neutral in responsibilities that you've called them not to be neutral in. And God, we pray that you'd help us understand the difference between dependence and knowing our own weakness and, and seeing uh, who you are and standing for you when it will cost us something. Guide us and protect us as we live amongst one another, as, as we grow in our leadership responsibilities. We ask for wisdom, and every one of us is in some kind of position where we, where we have to lead in wisdom, and we pray that we could learn godly wisdom and that that's what you would use to bring glory and honor to yourself through Christ, your Son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Psalm chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. 
Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. This is a song of David. He did know God. Amen. You're dismissed.